Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You'll stay? No, madam. Uh, may, but you will. I may not. Verily. Verily, you put me off with limber vows, but I, though you would seek to unsphere the stars with oaths, should yet say, Sir, no going. <laughs> verily, you shall not go. A lady's verily is as potent as a lord's. <laughs> Will you go yet? Force me to keep you as a prisoner, not like a guest. How say you, my prisoner or my guest? By your dread, verily, one of them you shall be. Your guest, then, madam, to be your prisoner should import offending, which is, for me, less easy to commit than you to punish. Not your jailer, then, but your kind hostess. Hello, and welcome to The Play's The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. I am the host of The Play's The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. You have joined us for the first act of The Winter's Tale. Um, But before we start talking about The Winter's Tale, before we talk about the audio clip that you just heard, I want to tell you about who is joining me today. This is my friend, Emily Maeda. Here's a little bit about Emily. She lives in Colorado, where she's the director of the upper school at the Paideia Classical Community in Fort Collins, where she teaches humanities and Latin and debate. She is the mother of seven children, and she is also vice president and designer of Tree of Life Landscapes, a design build firm that she and her husband, Mark, founded in 1998. She's also a classically trained penis, which Emily is going to come in handy later on in the play when we go to Bohemia, because there's all sorts of music in the air, right? Um, Anyway, Emily, thanks for joining me for The Winter's Tale. You really like this play, don't you? I love this play. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, I think I have kind of like uh, my plays that I think are most underrated, Shakespeare plays that are most underrated. And I have three that I think just get neglected. Coriolanus, Measure for Measure, and this is the other one, The Winter's Tale. It's so great. It's so great. I mean, I have to say that I haven't spent a lot of time with it. I know it, and I've taught scenes from it, but I don't know that I've ever read the whole thing through, nor have I seen it, nor had I seen it performed before I started reading for this. So I'm really... I've fallen in love with it. I love it. Um, did you you watch the Anthony Schur as Leontes video on YouTube, I right? I did. Yeah. So I want I just want to commend that to all of our listeners. There is a full-length Royal Shakespeare um production of the Winter's Tale with Anthony Schur. Anthony Schur also played John Falstaff in Henry the Fourth, part one and part two, and he's just a great actor and he plays Leontes. Now, let me just set up the play for a second, Emily, and then I've got some questions that I want to ask you. But I also want to give you a little bit of my background in a second about The Winter's Tale. Um, So, okay, the play starts with, you know, as all Shakespeare plays begin, like really happy, things are great, and then there's a crisis. So what's great is that there are these two kings that were boyhood friends, and they're visiting each other. One of them is the king of Sicilia. That is Leontes. He's probably our main character more than anybody else in the first half of the play. Leontes, king of Sicilia. His buddy is Polixenes, king of Bohemia. Everything's great. Bohemia has been visiting for a while. And on comes Hermione wife of Cecilia, wife of Leontes, and everything is just going great. Oh, such good friends. 
Hermione says to Polixenes, tell me about when you guys were, you know, boyhood friends and Polixenes talks all about it. Everything seems to be going to great. And then all of a sudden, Leontes, Cecilia, goes insanely jealous in a snap. So one of my first questions that I'm going to ask you is what makes him go so crazy? But let's pause on that for a second. Um, I played Polixenes. So cool. It was really great. A great role to play. And here's a little moment that I remember from the play. Opening night, we had been staged for me to walk on with Leontes in the opening scene of the play. And we were going to kind of hold a freeze, the entire cast on stage. And there's going to be some words spoken by different characters. And then we kind of jump right into scene two. So we kind of cut a lot of scene one. That's It's a lot of, yeah. Our director loved Shakespeare and he took great liberties with cutting. So he Mm. cut most of scene one, except for just kind of crucial moments. So I am backstage waiting to walk on with Leontes. The, the actor's name is Bill, and he was a friend of mine. And I'm behind Bill, and we're waiting in the wings. I'm not kidding you, Emily. We're waiting in the wings. The lights are all down. The music comes up on stage. That's our cue. We're about to walk on. And I have one of the first lines, because it was cut in our edition. My line... um nine changes of the winter of the, of the tiding moon has been the shepherd's note. Right. 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 We changed it to water. We changed watery star to tiding moon because our director was like, that's so hard to understand. And it's so important for the play. So that's what I'm supposed to say when I walk on and I'm behind bill. Right. And I completely forget what I'm supposed to say when I walk on, I mean, (laughs) spaced it completely spaced it. So I lean up to Bill in the darkness. We're about to go on. And I whisper to Bill, what's my line? And he hears it and he turns back to me and he kind of pantomimes, ha ha. Like funny, funny, Tim. That's really funny. Funny, like, no. funny you say that. No, seriously. <laughs> I was like, no, I've totally no, seriously. forgotten my Look line. My line. <laughs> I've totally forgotten my line. So I'm now in crisis mode. We start to walk on in the dark, right? It's go time. It's absolute go time. And I like, because God loves me and wants me to be happy. I was like, okay, you know what you need to do, Tim? You need to just forget that you are, you have the first line. You've said this line dozens and dozens of times in rehearsal. It's there. You'll find it. Just go out onto the stage. Forget what you're trying to remember. Just, you know. Mm-hmm. Do your lineup. And when it comes time, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's exactly what I did. And then lights come up. Tim's line is ready. And it shows up. Nine changes yeah. of the tiny moon has been the shepherd's note. I know it was so scary for a second. <laughs> so anyway. Um, that's a good performance. You should pull that out. That's a good performance note. You know? Pull it out. Say more. For teaching people. Like that is such an important performance note. Like sometimes you think yourself out of the thing you know. Yeah. You think you're, you've got to put yourself back into it because you do know it. Does that happen in music? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had the same experience. I was just thinking that in performance. It's and you like deliberately for you, you. You just think yourself out of it. You get to in your head. Right. And so you did the exact thing because you were so right. Anyway, that's a great story. It works. And that is a very key line. So it's a good thing you didn't. Oh, it's so important. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to talk about why it's a key line in the moment. In a moment. Uh, let's talk about why does Leontes, after all this banter, he clearly loves his wife. He clearly loves Polixenes. What happens to set him so in this state of like raging jealousy? Well, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, because that is part of it. You come up, it comes on so quickly, right? Um, It's part of what makes seeing a performance so important, I think, because when you see um, the actor, Anthony Scherr do it, it's just played so well. There's more time when you're reading the play, you don't get the time that can be expressed on the Mm. screen. 
change, right? And so you're reading it and you see them and there's this nice, he says, oh, tongue-tied our queen speak you. And so as, as soon as she starts speaking, when you're watching it, you can see his reaction to her speaking. Yeah. So about fine. And then as she goes on and asks about, are you my prisoner or my guest, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, Which we just heard in the audio. Which you think about, it It harkens back to ideas of chivalry, right? Mm. Like in the chivalrous notion, if you if a woman commanded you, you had to do it. Like that's a setup of Sir Gawain or Gwain, however you say it, whoever said yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, he is he is bound to do whatever the lady does. And the whole setup of the story is that he can't he can't sin. Right. But he has to do he has to fulfill her desires because that's part of chivalry. So as you're reading it, you think, well, right, she's just speaking within a chivalrous context. And uh, Polixenes, being the king that he is, is responding likewise, knowing that it's the desire of Leontes. Yes. Right. Right. But when you watch it played, and I guess if it's played well, you see his reaction to her entreaties and you see the jealousy happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Because I think it. I was I was curious to see how it would be produced because it is a little bit hard to believe when you're reading it, I think. It is. It is. I think it's hard it, to believe when you're reading it. The way that they staged it in this Anthony Schur vision that we heard the audio from at the top of the show um, you can see Leontes kind of on the side stage and he kind of notices Polixenes and Hermione kind of closer to the back of the stage. And all of a sudden his attention sort of flares mm -hmm. and he's paying attention mm -hmm. really closely now to what's going on to this little mm -hmm. kind of back and forth. We stage it the exact same way. I think it's a really great way of staging it because it, what's happening inside of Leontes is the key to the whole play. Like exactly. we have to see what happens to Leonti. So if he's in the back and the couple is not really a couple, the friends are up front, then it distracts us mm -hmm. from the real moment in the scene and the mm -hmm. real crisis of the play, which is Leonti's. Mm -hmm. So I think you asked before we started recording, is it believable? Mm-hmm. That, that was, Leontes would fly into a rage. Do you think it's believable? Um, I found it to be believable when I saw it staged. I but think, not when you were reading it or less not, so well, when you were reading it. Just because there's no context for it, right? We yeah. don't have the setup. So, I mean, when Polixenes says nine changes of the watery star, and then we realize that, um, when do we realize that Hermione's pregnant? I mean, we know it just from the play, but right. a little bit later on, we know it. Then you're like, oh. Well, that's kind mm -hmm. of key, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So then, I mean, when you see it staged, you can imagine this is maybe something that's been brewing for a while. And this is like the final straw, right? Because right. I think that that's the way it has to be taken. Right. That it's been brewing for a while, possibly. Yeah. But we don't really get that explanation as to we what don't. really set him off. Okay. Don't. So I want to interject here that this a little bit about the play. This is a very late play for Shakespeare. This is one of the last maybe handful of plays that he wrote. So traditionally speaking, the last play that he wrote was The Tempest. And people might quibble with that. But just traditionally speaking, this is kind of like The Tempest is Shakespeare's sign off from the stage. Mm -hmm. The Tempest is called sometimes a fantasy or a romance. And kind of these magical things happen in The Tempest. And the same thing is going to happen in this play. Mm -hmm. It's one of these late plays by Shakespeare. And he really, like, he loves miracles mm -hmm. and fanciful things. Mm -hmm. And things that are not supposed to happen can miraculously happen now through, mm -hmm. through magic. So all of that being said... That's the winter's tale. That's the kind of genre of the winter's tale. So it's not a romance mm -hmm. where the conclusion of the play is always the couple or the couples get together and there's a marriage or an allusion to an, to a marriage. Mm -hmm. It's not that. It's not a history like Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth. It's not a tragedy like King Lear. I mean, in some ways, it has elements of all those things, maybe except for history. Right. But now it's this different genre that Shakespeare is introducing to us. And it is 
magical and whimsical mm-hmm. and we call them romances now, or maybe mm-hmm. we might think of them more as, um, yeah, yeah, fantasies is maybe mm-hmm. like the more contemporary mm-hmm. nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Okay, that being said, one of the things that happens when Shakespeare, I'm just like really getting into this excited mode, when, it, it, when Shakespeare is writing tragedies, one of the things that makes Shakespeare's tragedies so interesting is that he oftentimes does not give a real plausible explanation mm-hmm. for like the darkness that afflicts the play. So Iago mm-hmm. in Othello, mm-hmm. Iago hates Othello. But there's not much of an explanation given for his just like red yeah. hot hatred. He just says, I hate the more. He just says, I hate the more. And there's an illusion that like maybe Othello was going to like getting with his wife or something like that, but he doesn't really explore that at all. And in this play, it strikes me as the same sort of thing. Leontes doesn't, it's not really given an explanation of why he turns into this raging, jealous husband. He has no perceivable reason for it. It just happens. Don't you think that that rings true, though, to the nature of jealousy? Yeah. (laughs) Presuming it's false jealousy. Presuming it's false jealousy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I thought, you know, I um, thankfully don't feel like jealousy is a main part of my life. But the few times that I felt it, there is something in this that rings true because it is like if you are going to fall prey to it, it is ridiculous, right? Yeah. It is ridiculous. It's built out of nothing. Yeah. And you have to be um, humble enough to say, oh, I have just been foolish here, right? Which he's not willing to do. And he finds proofs for it in everything because that is how jealousy works. Yes. Right. Right. It's like this whole new root. Totally. And you can find reasons for it anywhere, 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 anywhere. anywhere. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's, that's part of like, when you start out reading this play, it does feel like a tragedy. Yeah. And Leontes does feature as a tragic figure, right? Because he does not see, and he not only does not see, he does not want to see, right? He doesn't want to see. And that's actually, does he say it in in act two? I believe he says, but I see, I see. Oh yes. When the Oracle comes back, right? I'm sorry. I'm skipping ahead. I won't. Yeah. But um, that is like, we're watching him be a prisoner of his own reality. Emily, I want to fast forward just a little bit and introduce um, a character, Camillo. Yes. Because I want to play some audio of Camillo and Leontes. So let me set the audio up. It's after Leontes has like turned into this rage. He's all of a sudden like super jealous of Hermione and Polixenes. Polixenes and Hermione go for a walk and Leontes calls his most trusted advisor, Camillo, onto the stage. And he's like, don't you see it? Don't you see it? And of course, Camillo is so innocent. He doesn't see it at all because it's not happening. It's not happening. But well, he, it, go ahead. Well, at first, also, he also says he makes a, a Leontes makes a snide remark about Hermione and, and Camillo thinks it's almost a trap for him. He's like, may it not be so. We all yes. know who the queen is. Right. 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 I mean, so um, he's thinking that he's getting pulled into speaking badly about the queen, which he does not want to do because the queen is above reproach. Right. So I want to hear this exchange between Camillo and Leontes. Uh, let's listen to it now. I would not be a stand-by to hear my sovereign mistress clouded so without my present vengeance taken. Through my heart, you never spoke what did become you less than this. Is whispering nothing? Is leaning cheek to cheek? Is meeting noses? Kissing with inside lip, stopping the career of laughter with a sigh, a note infallible of breaking honesty, horsing foot on foot, skulking in corners, wishing clocks more swift, hours, minutes, noon, midnight, and all eyes blind with a pin and web but theirs, theirs only, that would unseen be wicked. Is this nothing? 
Why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohemia, nothing. My wife is nothing. No nothing. Have these nothings. If this be nothing. I will be cured of this deceased opinion every time. But this most thing. Change me, tis true. No, 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 no. You lie, you lie. I say thou liest, Camillo, and I hate thee. Were my wife's liver infected as her life, she would not live the running of one glass. Who does infect her? Why, he that wears her like her medal hanging about his neck. Bohemia! There we heard Camillo asking, who does infect her, Leontes? Why, he that wears her like a medal hanging about his neck. Bohemia. So the rage of Leontes toward, unjustly toward his wife is the cause of this play, right? Um, Not much else really needs to happen in act one aside from, and let's just wrap this up. Polixenes is advised secretly by Camillo because Camilla knows that Mm -hmm. Hermione and Polixenes are innocent Camillo goes to Polixenes, hey, you got to run, man. He, the king somehow suspects you guys. Mm-hmm. You got to hit the road. So Polixenes leaves a day earlier than expected. He runs away. And that's how we end act one. Okay. Emily, I want to do a little bit of background on the history, the history kind of around this play. So um, we had about seven years before the writing of the play, a change in the monarch mm-hmm. in Shakespeare's day. So Elizabeth was on the throne until she died. This is a really scary moment for England because she had no natural born heir. She's the virgin queen. She has no heir. And when you don't have a natural heir, the possibility of coups and intrigues are always front and center. Fortunately, it's a peaceful transfer of power. And James, King of Scotland, comes to the throne. But this is a really interesting play for James because of his mother. Do you know enough about that history to walk us through it, Emily? Well, I have just been... um... Actually, I just was teaching my kids this last year, and we read the story of Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah, so it's fascinating to think about the setup of this play because his mother was in a similar situation. So Mm -hmm. she married, she was Catholic and married a Protestant um, with whom she did not share power. And there were um, plots and intrigues against her from the Protestant husband. Um, But one thing that happened was while she was six months pregnant, her husband burst into her private rooms and killed her secretary with whom he thought she was having an affair. Mm. So similar, a a very similar setup to this story. Really interesting. And and Shakespeare, I mean, one of the first plays that he writes after James comes to the throne is Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Macbeth, of course, is all about mm-hmm. witchcraft at the beginning of the play. And who is obsessed with witchcraft? James. James. King James right. is obsessed with witchcraft. Right. So this is another situation. And of course, James would have seen this play. James would have been, I don't know right. if he would have been there opening night, but he would have seen Macbeth. And of course, he would have seen Winter's Tale. So I think Shakespeare knows how to touch the most important patron in the audience who is the king or, you know, earlier the queen. So talking about Mary queen of Scots, I think, and the intrigues about her supposed infidelity are really important. Well, and it gets to one of like the core um, mysteries in the play is who is the father of the child, right? Which Mm -hmm. has been an essential question through succession of all monarchs, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just thinking, and I couldn't find the reference, but there's a Catholic philosopher who, uh, Joseph Pieper, who was writing about faith. And he said, you know, one of the um, pieces of faith that all human beings have accepted is the voice of the mother as to who the father of her child is. Now, of course. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, of course, we have DNA, so we can get around that. Right. But four centuries, it was only the woman who knew, right? Yeah. It was only the woman who knew. And of course, why um, monarchs guarded their their um, 
wives with yeah. and everything else, because the question of succession is so essential. It's so, yeah. It's so essential. I mean, and think about Henry VIII, even with Elizabeth. I mean, until he brings Elizabeth back, she's a bastard child as well because he yep. has forced her mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or beheaded her mother. It explains why Leontes is a little bit preoccupied with his son. Exactly. Not the son who is not yet born, exactly. but the son who is on the stage. He's wanting to know, you look like me, don't you? Exactly. Don't you look like me? You do. Don't you? He's questioning everything. Everything. Right? That's the um, evil of jealousy is it does make you question everything. Yeah. And the only thing, scene. the only thing that he doesn't question is whether or not he has a reason to be jealous. Whether or not it's, the, it's right. Like, totally. Totally. Yes. And, and, you know, going back to Camillo, a favorite theme in Shakespeare, like the trusted advisor, the trusted advisor comes through and he refuses to listen, right? Lear yeah. doesn't listen to Kent. Right. Leontes will not listen to Camillo. Right. Who doesn't listen? Macbeth doesn't listen to Macduff. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like mm -hmm. they have their people around him who are telling them, you are wrong. Like Camillo. And that's one of the I, things I love about this play. Hermione is such a beautiful character. And everybody yeah. who talks about her says she is beyond reproach. Like she could never even be considered right. this. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. Right. It doesn't matter. Um, I love the character of Camillo. I love the character of Kent in King Lear. And I think what's really interesting about both of them is they're both put in a situation that they can't really win. They cannot they're sworn win. loyal. Yes. They have sworn loyalty to their king, which they've always displayed. Yes. And now they're put in a situation where they have to do a grotesque wrong. In this case for Camillo, Leontes asks, tells him, commands him to kill Polixenes. Yeah. So what does he do? He knows it would be completely wrong to kill Polixenes. And yeah, so. And, right. He says that he knows. Well, and he also knows that like his place is so insecure if he were to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He right. Alludes to in his words. Camillo to me is a great example of um, kind of practical reasoning on display. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you know? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do when the person that you are most loyal to and that your whole job depends on and your whole life and livelihood depend on tells you to do something that is grotesquely wrong and it's going to hurt him, mm -hmm. not just you, but it's going to hurt him. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Well, he has no choice. He has to go kind of underground and, and develop bruises himself mm -hmm. so that he can kind of preserve the king's honor so that he can save Polixenes' life so that he can save his own life. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. He, he says that he says, is the obedience to a master one who in rebellion with himself, I like that in yeah. rebellion with himself yeah. right? he knows that for whatever reason, Leontes is destroying all that is good. Right. Destroying his dearest friend, destroying his wife. Did you notice the little line? Um, Leontes calls Camillo the cupbearer of. Yes. Did you? Okay, so it's clear. I was a little bit confused by that, and I wonder if you have a speculation about what he meant there. Camillo is the servant to Leontes. Right. He's not, it does not appear to be the cupbearer of Polixenes. Right. Leontes calls him the cupbearer. So right. I didn't know if that was, it seems to me we've got two choices about how to understand that. Number one, um, he served, Camillo served Polixenes while Polixenes was visiting. He served him as his cupbearer. Yes. The other option is it's a metaphorical way of saying you are a trusted one to Polixenes. I took it as the first just you did. Okay. As you can, um, you know, so Leontes, I mean, that's what I'm assuming. Leontes gives Camillo as his trusted advisor, as a safe person for Polixenes to have. Right. right? Yeah. Says you might bespice a cup to give mine enemy a lasting wink, which draft to me were cordial. Yeah. So, I mean, he's saying he's the one that serves him wine or whatever his drink. And it seems right. that is because. Camillo is trusted to Leontes himself, right? Wouldn't yeah. you think? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the that's the option that I would choose also. Yeah. I was thinking about that role. Cupbearer is yeah. one of these kind of archaic occupations from the cobwebs of history. And it doesn't sound particularly important. It sounds very ceremonial, doesn't it? Too but well. it's not. Yeah, but it is not. No, it is not yeah. at all. I was I was um reading Nehemiah was cupbearer yes. to Artaxerxes the first yes. of Persia. Yes. And so the cupbearer is not just it, it's not just someone who kind of like helps set the table at the royal dinner, right. but it's the person in the kingdom who you trust the very most because exactly. we were talking just a little while ago about um how transfers of power are so fraught in the ancient right. world. Right. And if you're going to overthrow a king, the best way to do it and keep by your poison. head is yeah. by poisoning. Right. Yes. And so how are you going to poison them? You're going to slip something in their drink. And so the only person that you're going to, the person that you're going to trust to guard your cup against poison right. is the person you trust the most in the world. And Camillo has been that person for Leontes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you can see all of these things, like the question of succession, the the question of who's the legitimate heir, the question of trust, like it's all getting to um, the strength of the kingdom, right? Which is another yeah. reason that this feels tragic at the beginning, because it's really a questioning of the polity, right? How does yeah. all this hold together and stand together? And if Camillo had gone through with that, not only would... Um, Leontes be in a worse state, but now think about Bohemia, right? Now Bohemia doesn't have right. a king. Now Bohemia. Right. So it is interesting how he is sort of dealing with these elemental, deeply um, important questions of how a kingdom is run. Yeah. If Shakespeare has an obsession, that's the one. It is. Like yeah. the nature of power, especially the kingly power. power. Yeah. He, I mean, I was trying to think the other day about what plays are not chiefly concerned with that question. Like, what is it to be a king, to be mm -hmm. a good king? What does it look like when there's a bad king? Mm -hmm. um, and I had a hard time thinking really of any. any. The only one that I could think of was Midsummer Night's Dream. But even that one's even got kings that. in it. Yeah. Right. And the part of the reason that they fled to the forest is the trouble with the kings, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're, yeah, it's we're, really a question of power, right? Because Leontes is pulling out all of his power here. He to um, enact this thing that he thinks is true. And everybody around him is trying to figure out how to... Um, push that power back, right? Yeah. Trying to figure it out. I mean, in the future scenes, we'll see everybody else as well who are yeah. pushing back. Like, no, you are wrong. You do mm -hmm. not see, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that tragic misrecognition. Leontes does not see. He doesn't see it. Let's talk about uh, Hermione. We don't really Hermione, say again? We don't get her, right? We see her in act one. Where? When she's on stage with Oh, with this. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, be ahead because her big scene is coming, right? Her big scene is act three, right? Um, No, it's two. Oh, is it? Her monologue is act two. Mm -hmm. It's two. Okay, okay. Right, yeah. That, so we just see her briefly, but we know that she's pregnant, which yeah. I find really interesting. Okay, I think only Pericles is the only other Shakespeare play where we see a woman pregnant on the stage. Really? I mean, can you think of another one? I was talking to somebody recently about this and they brought up Pericles, but I can't think of another play where a woman is shown pregnant. What about Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra? I'm not, that's not an assertion. That's a genuine question. Is she pregnant? She's not pregnant. I, she might not be. Anyway. Yeah, we should, we should find the answer to that question, but it is unusual. It's it is, yeah, unusual. yeah, yeah, very unusual. And what can, think, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, what can we, like, based on what we've heard from the stage, what do we know about Hermione? Well, what we've seen thus far, I mean, and that's another thing that, um, 
I think is so important in seeing it, right? Because she is nearly due or nearly mm-hmm. ready to have her baby. So that is why then that line nine, <laughs> nine, nine changes, changes of the watery, the watery star, star yeah. right? Is really key. So she's very pregnant. And so then mm-hmm. seeing it staged, I think when you see a very pregnant woman, you cannot move so well, right? Yeah. You're uncomfortable and whoever is playing her shows that. So like there is such a vulnerability in that appearance, right? Yeah. There's such a vulnerability. And also, does it not make the jealousy? I mean, I guess on the one hand, it confirms it. On the other hand, it like seems so antithetical to the person of a a nearly due pregnant woman, right? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, don't you see them ne- neck to neck and cheek to ke- cheek? But like for Leontes, then it's like, well, of course it's his child. Of course. Right. It's, it's been going on the whole time. <laughs> yeah. You but know, one- I think from the, the, the perspective of the audience, you feel her vulnerability very keenly. You do. You really do. I even noticed. So in that opening clip of audio that we played, the actress who plays Hermione's name is Alexandra Gilbreth. And yeah. She, she was great. And she even did this thing. I wonder if you noticed it when she was speaking to Polixenes, she would do, she had, to, she spoke very slowly mm-hmm. with big breaths. Yes. Right. And I was like, yes. that's how pregnant women speak. Yes. Because like everything is it's like hard to do. Harder. Everything is harder. Yes. I yes. love that. It was just a little bitty thing that I just thought added so much to her character. Yes. Yeah, I thought she played her so well and played that whole feeling, right? Which I think lends it's or it deepens the tragedy, right? It just deepens the tragedy. Her vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. Here she is. What can she do? How can she protect herself? Right. How how when it's the furthest thing from her mind is her husband interpreting her kindness to his friend as sexual advances, right? Yeah. Right. What? Right. It's like the, and you see her femininity. You see how ridiculous Leontes' reading of sexual overtones is. Do you know? Yeah. What I mean? Oh yeah. Oh That's yeah. Part of it, right? Because it, she is like fully in. I don't know. Her femininity of being a mother, and that's like mm-hmm. the sort of the farthest thing. So, do you? Th- so, one of the one of the questions that I wanted to ask is. Do you have a sense that feminine, excuse me, do you have a sense that jealousy is experienced differently between men and women? Hmm, that is a really interesting question. This kind of irrational jealousy, I don't think it is. Do you? No. I don't think it is. But the, let's what what's the next step? The next step would be, okay, we grant that both men and women like can be irrational about jealousy, but like, what is the, what, what kind of, what is the feeling? What is the feeling that follows that irrationality? Oh, I can hear that. I guess I can see that. I think that that's something Anthony shared did so well Mm -hmm. (laughs) because when you watch it, it is terrifying because it's sort of the mm-hmm. male aggression. Is that mm-hmm. what you're asking? I mean, yeah. is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the terror of his rage. It is terrifying. I mean, it you is. feel it because he's been sort of, and I probably, I don't know if you staged it this way. Did you stage it this way? Like there's this sort of rough and tumble feeling between he and Polixenes because they're childhood friends. Right. Right. And that's like, you punch each other and roll around dogs and that's sort of the feeling. And then when Leontes, when it shifts, he's doing the same thing, but you feel the edge to it. Like it's rough and tumble, but there's like, there's a real edge to it all of a sudden. And you feel like, Oh, it may come undone. I mean, being around um, male rage is terrifying. Uh Uh-huh. Is it not? Uh Oh yeah. (laughs) Is it not? It is. It is. I wonder, here's what I hear from Leontes. It is, his jealousy is irrational, but he so swiftly goes to the injustice of it. Like, I think he is motivated 
yeah. throughout the first half of this play by yeah. his sense that he has been unjustly done. Yeah. And I think what he kind of skips over, which could have been his salvation in a way, is he just jumps over this sense that like, Hermione, how could you do this to us? Yes. Because that could be the place where she could yes. say, um, I didn't. I didn't. Right. But he will not be vulnerable. Right. Right. He will not be vulnerable. That, 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 that's a place of vulnerability. Yeah. And he refuses to be vulnerable. Yeah, it is interesting how he goes to injustice immediately. There is a place, too, where you wonder, what is this like? There's an, other relationships like this, that Hermione is so loved that he, you get a, maybe there's a oh. little piece there that he kind of wants to, de- I mean, do you think that he like kind he's of wants a li- to destroy her in a little bit? Because, like, maybe she, her goodness is kind of overshadowing him something like yeah, that yeah i don't know yeah just, yeah I mean, you get that because the way everybody talks about her is it's like this is the most crazy thing you could ever say about this uh-huh. she has never given any indication of right ever right she's the well-loved monarch you know i mean that could uh-huh. be in there that feeds his i don't know maybe not his craziness yeah just well and it's because it's not just his craziness it turns also from jealousy to like, I will destroy her. Yeah, right. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like it yeah. moves from, from that. And I also think that that's somewhat strange because often in jealousy, um, you know, it's the person who's pulled the beloved into jealousy that you're so angry with, right? Like why mm-hmm. is he, why doesn't, why doesn't he ask Polixenes to a duel? Oh yeah. Why that's actually interesting. Why doesn't he do that? I mean, wouldn't that be the normal thing? This man who's dishonored you in your own home, if you're Leontes, shouldn't he ask Polixenes to a duel? Wouldn't that be the way to uh, to write his honor? But instead, it's like, no, this woman, I'm gonna get rid of her. Like she has wronged me. In fairness, he does want to get rid of Polixenes, not through a duel, but through Camillo. Well, right, but that's not like that's not face to face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, that. Yeah, that just right now. That's just striking me. Like, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do that? Why Uh, doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he do that? Why is he so bent on destroying Hermione? Well, and that's also part of it. Like part of it with Mamilius is it's he's got. In a way, he's like, well, my succession is assured. I have this heir. Right. Which, I mean, I don't need you anymore, which is going to factor in later. Yeah, it is. Um, Emily, let's talk about the two kingdoms, let's, Sicilia yeah. and Bohemia. I am going to, I'm going to pose an analogy, a contemporary analogy. Okay. And you tell me if you think this is fair. <laughs> um, it's a little bit of a tortured analogy, but hopefully you'll be like a little bit gracious with it. <laughs> Bohemia is what red state people think blue state people are like. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, right? Bohemia is... Okay, you're saying it's more cultured or whatever? No, it's licentious. country. Yeah. Yeah, No, 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 no. No, it's not. It's not country. It's just, it's, um, we're going to find out it is country. Yeah. But I'm... Well, it's less cultured. It's less cultured. Less cultured. Um, manners are maybe like less important. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if like this is what red state people think that kind of like um, the liberal blue state is like, oh man, they just have no kind of like morals. It's just, you know, licentiousness. And conversely, Cecilia is viewed by Bohemia as blue state people viewing red state people. Oh my gosh, it's so rigid and ordered and top down. Is it too much? Is I'm just like making something that's not really there, there. Well, I think the things that you're <laughs> saying are good. I think that's how they view each other, but I'm not right. sure if I follow so much the red and the blue. But that's you don't okay. know that you don't know that like there's an over like an actual kind of like a metaphorical overlap between what I'm saying in Shakespeare's day. Is that what you're suspicious about? 
That's what I'm suspicious about. Yeah. I'm yeah. Suspicious about that. I think I am too. Let's transpose. Why don't we transpose it to something somewhat different? Like, okay. Yeah. Like countries. Like okay. maybe uh, America and Britain in the 1800s. Okay. That's great. So, so that? Britain would be Sicilia. Yes. Looking at America. Yes. And America is Bohemia. Okay. And so, so like, tell me what those two views are. Well, I mean, you know, Sicilia, modern day Sicily, right? I mean, it's been, it's within the orbit of Europe. So it's culture and everything else. I was actually really taken with Bohemia because I just traveled to Croatia this fall, which of course is not Bohemia, but nearby. And they share a lot, those countries that are around the Adriatic, right? Um, east of Europe, but not into Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of commonality among those countries. So I, I do think it's interesting because they have part um, took in European culture, but Europe has never really regarded them, right? And it's a little bit, there is that feeling here. I mean, we get it with the advisors at the beginning of the play because the Bohemian advisor says to Camillo, come to Bohemia, but we don't have the nice things that you have here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there is that feeling. And then we learn later on that um, Hermione is um, a Russian princess, which I also find really fascinating. I mean, I think the ideas of geography here, he's not, this isn't just accidental. Like he's being particular. It's intentional. Where he's setting them, you know? Yeah. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. No, I think so. For sure. And also sort of that um, Mediterranean Leontes being sort of hot-blooded, right? Whatever the stereotype of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I had done, I was doing just a little reading just because I was really interested in Bohemia. And then later on, we're going to get the coast of Bohemia. And of course, yeah. Bohemia does not go down to the coast, Right. Like actual Bohemia does not go down. Yeah, there. yeah. Which like he's been criticized. Shakespeare was criticized for, um, but at like different points, Bohemia did come all the way down to the Adriatic. You know, the kingdoms have fluctuated in that area of the world so much. Yeah. Um, but just being over there, it really is fascinating how there is their own like the the convert the conversation with Europe is real, and so they do have. Western art, you know, all of those mm. influences, but they also take stuff from the East and it's just mm. a really fascinating area. So it is fascinating to think, you know, for the Sicilians, the Bohemians are the other, as yeah. well as for the British people who are watching the play, right? There's something exotic about right. Bohemia. Right. And then to include the Russian princess also. It's a so very you, interesting choice. What do you make of her being Russian? What should we take from that? Oh, I don't know. What should we take from that? I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think of Russia is obviously in so many ways really resistant to being westernized. Exactly. Right. Yet, like Tolstoy yet, is so concerned and Dostoevsky also, granted 200 years after Shakespeare, but they're so concerned to not be kind of Frenchified, specifically Frenchified. Right. right. Um, Nevertheless, yeah, so much of Russia has taken Western influence and incorporated it into their world, their culture, their art, et cetera, et cetera. So I always think of Russia, like, is Russia part of the West, the way that clearly like Western Europe is, the United States is, Canada is, is Russia part of the West? No. That's a hard question to answer. I would say no, but in so many ways, they are influenced by the West. Well, right, because there's so much um, conversation between the countries, right? They're always expanding West, and Europe is always pushing them back. You know, I mean, it's as if they were ripe for some sort of a conflict where those two places meet, where kind of that's strange. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah, how not, I wonder where that how not ancient this problem is. Right, right. <laughs> okay, but but Hermione, Russian, for me, I mean, I'm going to use a really kind of coarse metaphor here. She's sort of terrain that's going to be defined by one of these two countries. Yeah, for sure. Well, and she also carries with her kind of like Othello, that exotic quality, for lack of a better word, right? Mm. She is the other. And that's mm. another, I mean... 
the um, piece of race in Othello is very interesting. And you could almost wonder, is it a similar thing here, right? She is not from Cecilia. Is she right. therefore more suspect, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think it is interesting placing her outside of, and she's going to refer to her father at some point, which I think is such an interesting reference. Do you remember that reference further in the No, play? no. We'll come to it where she says, um, if only my dear father could see me with remorse or something for like what she's suffering. Yeah. It's a really interesting um, statement to make. Like, so we can get to the question of time, but if it's contemporary, she's around like when this play is, who knows when this play is set? That's another yeah, question. Yeah, right, right. When is this play set? But um, if it's contemporary reference, it's around the time of Ivan the Great, right? Really? Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, there's a lot of commerce between Britain and Russia during this time, Elizabeth. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a very, thinking about how this plays to audiences of Shakespeare's time, it's a very interesting choice to make her Russian. I am moderately familiar with Catherine the Great's biography. She was- Yeah, I remember. She was around kind of just before the- American and French revolutions, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in reading her biography, you you hear the kind of West's influence mm -hmm. is coming closer and closer and closer to Russia. And she really likes she's inviting it. it. She's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, she's, with, as long as she can remain fully in control. Right. She's happy. She's happy with some of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, okay, let's talk about time. And I think this is probably going to be the last thing that we discuss. We've got five more acts to go. The nature of time, but I should say this, the placement of this play in time is, uh, it's hard to negotiate. Like, what are we talking? Is this like contemporary to Shakespeare? Is this like 500 years earlier? It's not a history it. play, so we don't really know. Right. And it's like, um, Oh, gosh. Okay, I'll back up. In a lot of Shakespeare's plays, there's this notion of the green world. Yes, you know? which like, we're going like, to get. Yes, we're going to get this, and especially we're going to get a lot of it in Bohemia. Yeah. For me, it almost feels like all of Bohemia is the yeah. green world. It's out of time. It's out of time. That's mm -hmm. right. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful, and it's, it's driven by music and mm -hmm. natural rhythms of life. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's kind of stripped away a lot of the artifice of, for Shakespeare, modern culture. Mm -hmm. and it's a place that we all kind of want to go, but it exists outside of time. What did you say, Emily? The pastoral, right? It's this the is pastoral. pastoral. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even when we come into it, it's very hard to tell where we are because we're going to have um, a um, appeal to an oracle. Okay, like that's ancient Greece. Right. An appeal. It's a long oracle. time ago. What are all the different funny things? Then we have um, a reference to a, a contemporary sculptor near the end uh -huh. of Shakespeare. Right. Uh -huh. So then that's placing it in contemporary. In the green world, here's the funny thing. We have references to like the printing press because they're bringing their ballads, right? That have been mm. printed. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, 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 yeah. But like the call to the oracle and sort of that, like it, it is the, isn't almost the whole thing out of time. It sure feels that way. Okay. And one more thing that's unique about this play. I don't know of another play of Shakespeare's that leaps forward. Yes. So 16 years, what would be the intermission of this play when we come back from intermission? And this would be between acts three and four. We're 16 years into the future. Yes. Is I don't, I can't play? think of another, I don't think there is. Well, because it's, it's breaking the rules of tragedy or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. Breaking the rules. Aristotle's natural happen. continuum. Yeah. Yes. And he really does honor that pretty well. He does. He does. Right. And that's, but it's interesting that this play, which is seemingly kind of like not really lodged in a real time yeah. is plays fast and loose with sweeping forward 16 years during yeah. intermission and no other play that I can recall does that. And we get father time, father time, 
who comes out and talks about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the question of time is really interesting, but it is interesting that he references a contemporary sculptor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a funny thing. Like he, but anyway, he's playing fast and loose because the the appeal to the oracle, like, well, it's also the question of religion. Where mm-hmm. are we? Right. He's appealing to the oracles, but then they talk about praying in the chapel. Yeah. And so it's just all, it's intentional, right? Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. To be a fantasy. I, yeah. It's once I upon a time. I think it's a fantasy. It is. It's once upon a time. It's exactly right. And yet he's he keeps rooting it back in what, in the quote unquote real world as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The things his audience would know. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily, let's look forward to act two. Um, listeners should be anticipating what from act two. I'll tell you one thing that I, I mean, they probably already know. Um, when Leontes is face to face with Hermione, what, how is he going to play it? Well, we can think probably not well. I think yeah. they should be looking forward to Paulina. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite <laughs> Shakespeare women. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a great play for for really for women. strong women. It really is. Yeah, it really um, is, and they're strong all in different ways. Yes, yeah. I think if you're going to have your daughter memorize a, a a monologue, it's Hermione's monologue in Act Two when she's just to flash forward a little bit mm-hmm. when she's put on trial for her life, mm-hmm. she's innocent. She's knows she knows she's innocent. How does she defend herself? Mm-hmm. Mm. It's so good. I've had a daughter do it. It's so yes, good. you have. And she did it. <laughs> she did it wonderfully. She was so good. So um, those are a couple of the things to look forward to. One other little thing to look forward to, not next act, but in this play, this play has the most famous stage direction in theater history. And I'm wondering if we should say it now or if we should just hold on to it. Well, it's kind of funny. You should just say it now. The most famous stage direction in theatrical history, not just Shakespeare, in theatrical history, I'm sure of it, is Exit Pursued by a Bear. (laughs) And it's like terrible for the person who's being pursued by the bear, but it's a hilarious scene. It's one of my favorites. It really is. (laughs) <laughs> um, we can talk a little bit more of this, but I think that there's a reason to think that in Shakespeare's day, it was a real bear. What? Yes. What? I'll make my case when we get to act three. Poor, poor, poor traumatized bear, most likely. <laughs> I know, right? Oh I goodness. know. For sure. For sure. Emily, thanks for joining me. Uh, I'm looking forward to act two. Um, I want to make a little plug as I've been doing for the last few episodes I had, in, in fact, Emily, you're a good person to um, do this plug in front of because I have worked with your school, with the Paideia School in Fort Collins, to put on a Shakespeare showcase, which is we got your students together and we gave each of your students a couple of different scenes to perform. And we had them perform maybe what? 10 to 14 different mm-hmm. scenes for their friends and for their family from all different Shakespeare plays, kind of like the best Shakespeare scenes that we could find. And your students were wonderful. And that's a service that I offer for schools, homeschools, public schools, private schools that are interested in, you know, giving their students an exposure to acting Shakespeare, but maybe you don't have the bandwidth or the budget or the personnel to do a whole play, you just want to do kind of like maybe 10 scenes. I've got a um, website set up to the service that I provide. If you have any interest in that, it is timteachesshakespeare.com. And it includes 40 free scenes, like really great scenes from Shakespeare's corpus, including the Hermione speech. It's an amazing experience. It's transformative for students. I cannot tell you how our students have changed. I should tell you, Tim, after your coaching these last three years, they just did their own small scenes from Lear and they blocked it all themselves and they were telling each other, but it's because they had learned from you. 
Man. And it was remarkable to see. That it makes me so happy. It I'm so remarkable. proud. And the amount of effort that doing a Shakespeare showcase takes for support staff is so much less than for a play. Yeah. And so I, that's why it's just, it's an amazing thing because they get this transformative experience but it is also doable for smaller schools and people who don't have all sorts of resources. That's a great plug. Thank you, Emily. TimTeachesShakespeare.com. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to The Plays of the Thing. Tune in next week for Act Two of The Winter's Tale.